Well, welcome again to South Point. My name's Tanner. I'm on staff here. Glad that you've joined us. And before we dive into the message, I uh, just have one announcement, too. Is, uh, we, we announced how next week we're having one service at 10 a.m. It's actually going to be right behind this building here on our property. Uh, so you can just kind of follow the lane back. Uh, it's not going to be streamed. Uh, but if you bring your own blankets and, and chairs, that'd be great. And then from there, we're actually trying something the rest of the summer. We've, we've tried different things through the pandemic, and so this falls into the category of us trying something new. Um, actually, for the rest of the summer, what we're going to do is actually do one service each Sunday as well. So it's going to be a 10 o'clock service, so we're not going to do two on Sunday morning. Just one service, 10 a.m. It is going to be a uh, mask optional for fully vaccinated people service. Uh, so very consistent with what we're doing right here, right now. Uh, but it's going to start next Sunday because we'll be outside, and then after that, we'll just keep rolling to the end of the summer, and we'll evaluate and, and look ahead. Uh, but for us, if you're brand new to South Point, the reason we make this decision or uh, other decisions is we want everyone to experience God's unconditional love. Uh, no matter what we do here on Sunday morning, and for me, Sunday morning, this is a time to sing praise with other people to God, that God is a God worthy of praise. Now, I myself, I confess, I'm not really a singer. Shocking to some of you. But this is a time where it's refreshing to be able to hear what, to hear other people praise and to be to joining in other people praising God and to do this together. And if you're brand new to faith, you may say, well, I don't even sing. What's singing? That's so strange. I don't do that other parts of my life. Uh, but what we're really doing is expressing something that is deep, truths that we believe uh, are, are real and very tangible, something that we can sing out and praise God. And uh, so I hope that it's something that when you come, you experience, experience God himself. Now, what we do during this time is we, we, teach, we teach about God's unconditional love. We teach about uh, the person of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, who is God in flesh, came down for you and for me. And actually this year, we are zeroing in on teaching about Jesus from one biography in Scripture the Gospel of John. So our theme for this whole year is revealing Jesus. We would say, you know what, we believe that life changes when we see Jesus for who he is, that it changes every part of our life. And that's what we're doing today, right now. Uh, we're continuing in a series, kind of sub-series of this whole year theme called Signs, because what this author does in the Gospel of John is he actually includes seven specific signs, seven specific miracles of Jesus which point, not only, they're, they're, yes, they are the event in themselves, but they actually point to something deeper, I think, a truth, a principle that is real, that you and I can incorporate into our life. So last week, we looked at the very first of these signs. The very first sign is Jesus turning water into wine. And we asked this question like, okay, well, Jesus, there's like bigger issues in the world than someone running out of wine at a wedding. Why, why start there? And what we discovered last week, if you're here, you can go back and watch this as well, is that sign really points to joy. As I said last week, quoted, quoting C.S. Lewis, joy is the serious business of heaven. Jesus is the king of joy, the giver of joy, the source of joy. And he's setting the table for what his kingdom looks like. Now, whereas last week we asked this question, okay, well, Jesus, why didn't you start with something like big, huge crisis in life? Why did you start there? 
this week, the second sign, we actually look at such crisis. That's where he goes with his second sign into one of the most desperate situations that a person can feel. We see a parent who has a child who is near death. Like the, the, the experience that parents would consider as their worst nightmare would fear, would keep them up at night. So this man comes to Jesus bringing grief and desperation. And that's what we see as a second sign of Jesus. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. So after the two days, he, Jesus, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. He has no honor among the people who know him. Now when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem and at the Passover festivals, for they also had been there. Now once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and to heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. He's saying, Jesus, come to my house. I know it's a long walk. I know it's like a day's walk, but come. Here's Jesus' response. He says, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. The question is, what does this sign, what does this event that happened 2,000 years ago, what does this point to in your life and my life? I believe that it points to a type of freedom. We will see this as the message develops, but in a word, what this whole story is about is this is about trust. This is about trust. If you're brand new to this whole faith thing, you will see here that this is really about what trust is, who trust is for, and really what we gain by trusting Jesus. We start with what trust is. What trust is? Trusting Jesus, what this is at all. Trust is taking Jesus at his word and then giving up control. Trust is taking Jesus at his word and then giving up control. We see this in verses 49 and 50, which to me are the verses that highlight these, these couple sentences here, highlight their, it's the crux of the story. The royal official said to Jesus, come down before my child dies. What he is saying is, Jesus, I have in mind what I would like you to do. I have the situation at hand. Here's what I want from you. I want you to come with me. And Jesus just says, no, I'm going to do something a little bit different than that. He says, go, your son will live. And what the man did is he demonstrated trust. The father did. He took Jesus at his word. And then he departed. The first aspect of trust is the taking Jesus at his word. When you open up scripture, you will re read promise after promise from God. Will you take him at his word? This is the question. You see, at South Point, we sing this song called Yes and Amen. 
It's a song about the promises of God and that in Jesus, all of those promises are actually yes and then amen. It's actually based on a scripture written a couple of decades after this event happened. The promises are yes and amen. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out exactly how we want or go exactly the way in which we want, but that the promises, the promises are true. We sing this song because what, when, we're doing, when we're singing this song, we are saying, Jesus, I'm taking you at your word. And I believe this father would have sang that song right alongside of us. And then what he does, not only does he take Jesus at his word, he actually departs. And his departure is a significant action. I mean, if you think about it, if you were in this father's shoes, and I'll put myself, if I was in this father's shoes, I traveled this whole day to have a conversation with Jesus, and my conversation with Jesus is ever so brief. You walk a whole day, and then you have just a few minutes of conversation. I would want to convince Jesus that the situation that I was bringing to him was worthy of his attention. I would want to convince Jesus of the severity of it, of the situation. I would want to convince him of the urgency of it because this was my kid. There's nothing more important to me. And as human beings, we can honestly probably say this ourselves. There's, there's nothing more important than what's happening in our lives when we realize this. And maybe this is sinful to say or to admit. I, I, I don't know. But you know what? There can be tragedy happening all over the world when something is impacting you directly. You realize that it's like, Jesus, don't you see how this is so, so important? And he had in mind that he wanted Jesus to come, and Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that, but your son will live. And the choice is what this man would do from that point. And he just departs. He leaves. In essence, what he's doing is he's giving up control. He, he lives out this scripture that Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches about prayer in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. And how we approach God. And he says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. He says, do not be like them, because here's the deal. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Here's how you should pray with this assumption that your father knows what you need before you ask him. What Jesus is advocating here is he's advocating for short prayer. That you can come to God and it doesn't, you don't have to pray for an hour. Don't keep on babbling. For your Father knows what you need. You can bring your needs right before him. And you say, well, okay, why, why is Jesus advocating short prayer? Is it because, you know, God is like kind of short on time. God has all these people that he's caring about. And me, I'm short on time too. So I'm just going to like kind of get to the point. We'd we be done with it. No. The reason for short prayer has nothing to do with time, but has everything to do with trust. Everything to do with trust. When you pray short prayers, you are trusting that God hears you. When you are praying short prayers, what you're doing is you're trusting that God, your Father, knows what you need before you, before you even ask him. When you're praying 
short prayers, what you're doing is you're trusting in his grace, you're trusting in his mercy, that you don't have to babble on, you don't have to be eloquent and work up all of these words and all, spend all of this time just to try to get, get him to hear you. You're trusting his character as a father. That's what trust is. And that's what this man does. He comes to Jesus. In a desperate situation, See, you and I, when we hear of desperate situation, I think of desperate situations. Desperate times call for desperate measures. What was the desperate measure of this father? Trust in action. Just trust that he put into action, that he took Jesus at his word and just departed. And this is so significant. If you are brand new to faith, this is significant because this is what the faith is all about. Trust. And I believe this challenges those of us who've been in the faith for a long time. Easy for us to be distracted. And we ask the question, then, who is trust? Who is this trust for? The answer, the trust is it's for everyone, but it's often found, it's often found in unexpected places. It's often found in unexpected people. You see, what you may not realize from the story, what may you, from just a quick reading of it, or quick listening, just reading it once, that this is a story of contrast. Contrast of trust. You have on one hand this father over here who is a royal official, and he walks a day to be with Jesus. He's that geographically far away. Now, when I was studying and preparing for this message, I thought, royal official, who is this guy? Who, official of what? Of whom? And here's what I discovered, when I, what, what scholars think about this, this royal official. This royal official was either from the household or he worked for Herod. Now, Herod is not a name. Herod's a title of a certain ruler, a line of rulers, this is the same line of rulers who, when Jesus was born, they wanted to kill this. The Herod in place wanted to kill Jesus, so much so that he orchestrated a genocide of every boy who was two years old and under living in the vicinity of Bethlehem. This is the same line of Herods who, at the end of Jesus' life, were just okay stamping approval on the death of Jesus. And yet you have this official who, who is either a member of that household or who works for that household, and he sees Jesus, and he goes completely against the grain of those people around him, and he says, you know what? I have a problem, and Jesus is the only one who can help, and demonstrates all the faith, and he says, I see Jesus for who he truly is, and he walks a day to be with him. That's the, that's the royal official. Now, on the other hand, I don't know if you caught the part, but at the beginning, Jesus said to, he's quoted, John quotes Jesus as saying, a prophet is without honor in his own country. What, what's that mean? Well, that means the people who are geographically closest to Jesus don't believe him. That even people in Jesus' own family didn't believe him. Not initially, at least. We see this just a couple chapters later in John chapter 7. Jesus' brothers come to him and they're, in essence, are mocking him when they say this. 
They say, okay, Jesus, well, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. Go show off, Jesus, because no one, want, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, Jesus, why don't you show yourself to the world? For even, and it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Translation, what, he, what they are saying here, what he's quoting the brothers. The brothers, the people closest to Jesus are saying, Jesus, I know for you it's all about a public attention. Jesus, I know that, that that's what it is. You just want to become a public figure. And they did not believe in him. The story is a contrast. You have someone from Herod's family who believes in Jesus, someone from Jesus' family who, who doesn't. They miss him, even though he is right before their very eyes. So if you're brand new to faith and you say, you know, I, I'm kind of intimidated coming into church because I hear people and I go to home group and I, they, they quote scriptures and they know like books and chapters and verses and they say prayer, they say words that I don't even know and, and you say, I feel like I can never catch up. Well, let me just assure you, this faith is not about knowledge. This faith is about trust. And for those of us who've been around for a long time, this faith is about trust. Trust in action. Now the question is, finally, then, the third and final question is, okay, what do we miss if we miss this sign? If we miss the sign of Jesus, what are we missing out on? We're spoken positively. If we understand the sign, we see Jesus for who he is, just like this man, just like this father, what do we see? What do we gain? if we trust him? And the answer is this. We gain freedom from the illusion of control. Freedom from the illusion of control. The fact of the matter is, there are so many areas of life that we are not in control of. And quite honestly, religious people sometimes like religion because they like control. Let me give you a few examples to explain what I mean. So, say you, you come down with an illness, you go to the doctor, and you receive a diagnosis. And it could be you, or it could be someone in your family, someone that you care deeply about, and you are distraught. And you say, I need prayer. So you say, I'm going to go to my friend who is you know, a churchgoer, I think that they will pray for me. You go to your friend, you pour out your heart, your desperation, your grief, diagnosis. And your friend, the religious person, here's what they say to you. They say, well, I'm sorry that's happening. And then they kind of get down a layer and they say, well, okay, tell me what's happening in your life. Like, why would God do this to you? What, what are you hiding? What, there's the secret? How are you not obeying? And what they're really getting at is that you are being punished for something that you've done through this illness. And if you've never been on a receiving end of that conversation, I'm glad for you. Unfortunately, so many people have because I've had the conversation after those conversations to say, no, that's not how God works. And Jesus tells some specific stories that completely contradict that. And, but that's, a relig that's sometimes the advice that religious people give. Or on the other hand, 
if you are the religious person and you come down with a diagnosis, you lose your job, or there's some other event that you cannot control. When that happens, you start saying to God, God, why is this happening to me? God, you owe me. God, I've done everything that you have asked of me along the way. I've taken this step, I've done this, you know, and, and you can, you probably name things like, well, I, you know, I come to church most Sundays, I give some money, I, I volunteer here. But God, I'm a pretty decent person, and you haven't held up your end of the bargain. And that's the reaction. Both the religious person who will who will give you counsel and, and, and advice and say, you know what, there's, you're to blame for anything wrong in your life, or you, if you come and you have this approach to God, guess what is the foundation for both of those ideas? The foundation for both of those ideas comes down to one word, and that word is control. It's not really a belief in a personal God. It's this idea, you know, what's under both of those, what's under religion oftentimes is this idea that, yes, you can control God if you just do this and this and this. And you come up with your own recipe, your own formula, and you say, well, I've done this and this and this. Therefore, God, God should honor me and keep me safe. What you're really doing is you're trying to put God in your debt by doing these religious type of things. It comes down to control. But then it just takes one diagnosis, one situation that is totally outside of your control to break you of that. For you to realize that you're not in control. And I think, if I'm being honest, I think that deep down we all know this like anyway. Because even when we like, are trying to dot our I's and cross our T's with God and make sure that we are kept safe, if we are living under the illusion of control, you know what's still present in us? If we're living under the illusion of control, what is present is this like, deep-seated, this kind of like low-grade paranoia that is just waiting for something else to happen just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Just wait. We're just waiting, waiting, waiting. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And yet, when we come to this God and we say, God, I realize I am not in control, that you are in control, that there is a freedom in that. There's a freedom in that. It actually reminds me of a story from the, uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you're not familiar with this Bible, this is a great kid's Bible that all adults should read as well. And there's a story that is not well known, so I, th I think it's especially helpful to read it out of a kid's Bible. It's from the Old Testament, the part of the Bible written before Jesus about a man, a man named Naaman. And I won't read the whole thing, but here's how it starts. Naaman was a very important man in a very important army of a very important country. You see, he was very, very, very important. But Naaman was sick. He had leprosy, which is a nasty thing that stops you from feeling anything. Bits of you fall off without you noticing, like bashed fingers and squished toes. And Naaman needed help. 
and it tells the story of a little slave girl whose people Naaman had just conquered who actually wanted to help Naaman and care for him. So she told Naaman that he could find healing in Israel with a prophet named Elisha. And so Naaman, desperate to try anything, says, I will go, I'll, I'll go. But instead of going to Elijah, here's what happened. He says, I'll go to the palace because that's where somebody important like me gets healed. So he goes to the palace asking for healing. And the king replies, look, I can do a lot of things, but only God can heal. And at that moment, what happened is that there was a message from Elisha that arrived that just said, send Naaman here. So what Naaman did is he hurried off to Elisha's house. And again, this very important man, what he thought was going to happen, he thought Elisha, this prophet, was going to meet him because, again, he was very, very important. But Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. Elisha just sent a servant out, and the servant just relayed this message to Naaman, hey, go wash in the Jordan River. Wash? That slimy, stinky river? Any person can wash in a river, he thought, but I'm Naaman, I'm important. I should do something important so God will heal me. And then he rode off in a rage. And of course, you and I both know that's not how God does things. And here's my favorite line from this whole story, the way they tell us. All Naaman needed was nothing. But it was the one thing that Naaman didn't have. You see, he was sick on the outside, but he was even sicker on the inside. He was proud and thought he didn't need God. Well, finally, in his desperation, Naaman went to wash in the river, and he was healed. And then he went to pay Elisha. God healed you. You can't pay, said Elisha. It's free. And for us, it's really hard for religious people, people who've been in the church a long time, who tithe and serve, to come feeling like we're bringing nothing. God doesn't hear you because you do those things, though. You know that, right? You have no control over certain aspects of life. And when you know that, there's freedom in that. And this is where people who've been in church for decades and decades and decades can honestly learn from the recovery community. Mary Gribben, who is part of South Point, who serves on our Celebrate Recovery team, has summarized the 12 steps, the first three steps, like this. I can't but he can, so I'll let him. I can't. I can't, as you saying, God, I just do not have control over this and this and this. And quite honestly, we are people who like to think that we are self-made. We like to think that we are self-sufficient, and trust in action is risky. It is hard for us to get to the point to say that I can't. I can't. But he can. 
What can he do? All of the promises in, in here that God can reconcile, that God can heal, that God can forgive, that God seeks and save the lost. All, all of those, we say, yes, I can't do those things, God, but you can. The question is, will you let him? Wherever you are, whatever you're dealing with, will you let him? Trust in action. And when you do, there's freedom from the illusion of control. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to celebrate what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus, by taking communion. Here in person, we have crackers and juice to celebrate his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. And that he conquered death, that he beat death by his resurrection. And that because of that, you and I can have life in him. You and I can actually have grace. And our grace is not because we have done anything. It's not like we've worked our way up to God. It's simply because of who he is that he took this first step towards us. We believe that this is worth celebrating each and every week. So I'm going to say a prayer, and then what we're going to do is we're going to take communion, and I encourage you to celebrate Jesus here in this moment. Celebrate that he is trustworthy. And that we will sing a song just about that. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Honestly, life happens so fast. And sometimes we find ourselves in desperate situations, God. And we need you. And we thank you for proving your trustworthiness by sending your son Jesus to us. Such a sacrifice, and yet so life-giving. I pray that you help us focus on that right now in this moment. And Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.